fastball strike for Williams, two and one. Joe Carter, who produced 121 runs, Madeline, in the 93 season, hit 33 home runs, is in that kind of a situation right here. Two-one pitch, swung on and missed, and it's two balls and two strikes on Joe Carter. Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, half man, half podcast machine. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up, prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where... We collect ball players and their stories. Want to welcome everyone in from my most ardent OG lieutenants who may have uh, followed me through this uh, podcast endeavor here that I've gone through since day one. To all the newbies who have stumbled upon this show in the past few months, welcome in. Make yourself comfortable, whatever that entails. I don't judge. And join me every Tuesday as we celebrate the greatest game ever invented on God's green and blue marble through her indelible stories that have stood the test of time. Backwards K-Pod is available on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your pods. You can visit my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com, to hear any of the shows in my always-growing catalog of archived shows. And I will never charge you a penny for the content here in this busted-ass economy. For me... That's a real dick move. When when peanut butter costs $8, you know, and you're charging people to listen to your podcast, 
Yeah, that's a dick move. So, no Patreon, no crowdsourcing. I truly love and respect my audience. So, that ain't never happening. I'm just going to roll up my sleeves every Tuesday and come through with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Tyrus Raymond. You know what I'm saying? If you really want to help a good brother, here's what you do. Subscribe, follow, share, download. If you're on the Apple or Spotify uh, listening to this program or any of the other platforms that offer you the ability to rate and review my performance, please do so as you see fit. I ain't scared. I'm serious about the work, but I don't take myself too serious. You know what I'm saying? This show is about the work, not about me. Although, look, I do love retelling these stories. So please, take literally 60 seconds Please rate and review me so I can afford to buy my family $8 peanut butter. Thank you. Costs you nothing, helps me to afford peanut butter. Seems like a pretty fair fucking deal. In 11 months, I've covered over 160 years of professional baseball. From the very first team, the Cincinnati Redlegs, all the way up to the life of the recently retired and iconic Albert Pujols. And now... I'm just kind of filling the pages of all our, uh, you know, I'm filling the pages in between these bookends with, you know, this historical collection with all of those stories. Uh, I do have some announcements before we move forward this week. First of all, I want to say congratulations to the Houston Astros for winning their second world championship in six years when they beat the Phillies four games to two uh, this past Saturday night. And honestly, Filthy, you got nothing to be ashamed about. Not many people outside of Philadelphia gave them a chance to even be there. Yet there they were, fighting to the bitter end. And, you know, after that historical combined no-hitter in Game 4, the Phillies lineup, it just went ice cold, and they never quite recovered. Congrats to Dusty Baker, who finally gets his chip after his third shot at this thing. And, of course, all of the Astros faithful. The Astros were clearly the best team in baseball all year. And they proved that emphatically with this World Series performance. Uh, Shortstop Jeremy Pena was the first rookie to ever win uh, the World Series MVP. He's also the first rookie uh, shortstop to ever homer in the World Series. And that dude, he put on a show. Although, I will say this, and I'm a little salty. Jorge Mateo, shortstop of the Orioles, he was robbed of a gold glove by that rookie. And, uh, you know, again, I'm a little salty. Gunnar Henderson, he's going to be a better shortstop than Jeremy, Jeremy Pena in the end. You heard it here first. But I digress. Those are stories for a different pot. Great job by the, by the Astros rookies. And, uh, and, again, congratulations to the world champion, Houston Astros. Also, as season one of Backwards K-Pod is winding down, I have a little programming note. So next week is going to be like this whirlwind here at the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex. Um, Tuesday, November 15th, I will dr- be dropping a baseball in Puerto Rico show as I start to gear up for the WBC that is set to kick off on March 23rd. We've already done baseball in the Dominican Republic and baseball in the Netherlands. And next Tuesday, we will add Puerto Rico to the collection. From here until March, though, we're going to be breaking down a lot of countries, almost all the countries that are involved in the tournament. And a few of those shows, I'm going to actually have a co-host in the studio to give me the inside skinny. So, 
Baseball in Puerto Rico on next Tuesday. Then on Friday, November 18th, I will be sitting down with former MLB player Shea Hillenbrand as we will be discussing his journey to the bigs, his abrupt retirement, and his post-career where he spent, uh, you know, basically going around the club and spending, spreading positivity. And again, that's going to be on the 18th. And then on Tuesday, the 22nd, I will dissect the legend of Hank Aaron, which, you know, that's going to be a big one, of course. So over the course of the next 14 days, I will be giving you four shows. Today's show, Baseball in Puerto Rico, Shea Hillenbrand Live Interview, and Hank Aaron, all in the span of the next two weeks. Now, look. Nobody drops the fucking hammer like your boy Snake. The 2022 season may be over, but not in my fucking house. I live and breathe this shit 24-7, 365 days a year. I will never turn my back and forsake my Seamhead audience. A promise to you from me until my very last fucking breath. I mean, I actually envision me doing this in a hospital room. Hey, you know, in the very end, I've made it my mission in life to expose myself to the globe and the world and to leave something behind for these boys and girls. Also, you may have noticed a slight uptick in stadium shows lately, as today we're going to be speaking on the history of Skydome, or Rogers Center, as she is called nowadays. I know a couple weeks ago we did Kaufman, and next month we will be looking at Comiskey Park 2.0. And believe it or not, there is a method to my madness here. The plan is to get you the background on Skydome and Guaranteed Raid Park, or as I call it, Comiskey 2.0, to finish out this first season here at Backwards K-Pod before we begin looking at the new retro-era ballparks next year, starting with the mother of them all, Orioles Park at Camden Yards. And before I get started, I want to tell you real quick about one of my very first fans I met year one of my podcast career. His name was Braden Bramrick, and he lived in Ontario. And he was a real sweet guy, much, much younger than me. He was a diehard Blue Jays fan. We developed quite a relationship, and I admired him because, well, he was just this Canadian kid who knew the game, he loved the game, he was a fast-pitch softball player, so we had that in common, and luckily for me, he loved my work, and he was on quite a few of my older shows, whenever I had questions about these young Jays that were cut up, you know, the Nate Pearsons, the Bichettes, the Guerreros, the BGOs, and he was just a great dude. Well, unfortunately, Brayden was in a fatal accident about two years ago. And ever since then, there's been like this Jays void of my baseball family. And it's been very hard to replace ever since. So this week's show is dedicated to my Canadian brother, Brayden Brerick. I miss you, brother. I miss our conversations. I miss your Blue Jays passion. Rest in peace. Godspeed, Bray. And time will not dim the glory of your deeds. This one is for you, my friend. So, with that being said, it looks like the catcher is ready to come down. It's time to call all aboard. 
and get our uh, night train time machine loaded down here. And we're going to set our coordinates and dates as we head to the Ontario province of Canada, 1982, the city of Toronto. And as we take our trip here, I want you to go ahead, make yourself comfortable. We have a little bit of time before we get there, so relax. And I'm going to give you a little background on how we got to 1982. Now, as an ignorant, closed-minded American, Canadian sports conjures up these images of, for me, ice hockey, curling, three-down football league, maybe a bobsled, some skis. Or maybe, you know, you're carving a hole in some frigid ice to catch a fish. Throwing some moose hunting. You know, all these silly stereotypes. But baseball. Oh, it has a long and somewhat overlooked place in the Canadian sports universe prior to the Expos playing in Montreal beginning in 1969 or the Jays inaugural season of 1977. Toronto has had teams in baseball leagues since the 1870s. Most notably, the Toronto Maple Leafs of the International League from 1912 to 1967. In 1969, Paul Godfrey, uh, Toronto alderman, he approached baseball commissioner Bowie Kuhn in a Fort Lauderdale hotel room where the meetings were being held, and he asked for a franchise. And the response from the commissioner was not entirely brimming with enthusiasm, as he told Mr. Godfrey, Let me tell you how Major League Baseball works, kid. First you build a stadium, and then we consider if we want to give you a baseball team. So, with that being said, little progress was made until 1973. Godfrey was re-elected, and he promised to deliver a Major League Baseball franchise, a dome stadium, and a new conference center. At this time, obtaining the capital... To build a park, it seemed unlikely at this juncture. So, the focus was on renovating the existing exhibition stadium, which was being used by the CFL Toronto Argonauts, and they were having like you know rock concerts and stuff like that in there. So, Godfrey approaches Ontario Premier William Davis with a plan. The plan called for using the existing North Grandstands as bleachers. Number two, build a new South Grandstand near home plate. Number three, extend a temporary fence between the two grandstands to establish an outfield. And number four, Municipal County will contribute $7.5 million Canadian. And it's important to note, all the monies that I mentioned this week will be in Canadian dollars unless I specify and I give you, you know, what the American dollar would be amount in today's economy. So... With that being said, public support for the agreement was divided. And it was likely because of the, you know, the economic conditions of the time. According to Stats Canada, the inflation rate for Canada from 1973 to 1975. Well, in 73, it was 7.8%. At 74, it was 11%. And in 75, it was 10.7% respectively. these public concerns, the Metro Toronto Council went ahead and okayed the renovation product project at an estimated cost of $15 million by a vote of 23 to 6 in 1974. Furthermore, the investment was considered a temporary facility until a dome stadium could be built. 
the actual renovation costs was at $17.8 million Canadian. So now that the political side has been taken care of, the objective switched to assembling ownership groups to approach MLB and formally request a franchise. And initially, three groups expressed interest. The first group was fronted by Sidney Cooper, owner of CA Pitts Engineering and Construction Limited, a company that specialized in large-scale construction such as uh, bridges, dams, tunnels, multi-lane highways. Shortly after that, Montreal secured an NL spot with the Expos, and it was Cooper who formed the Toronto Baseball Company, which comprised of himself, three Toronto business partners, and two Americans with connections to Major League Baseball. The Cooper Group was initially interested in an NL team, hoping to capitalize on a possible Montreal-Toronto kind of baseball rivalry. rivalry. Ultimately, uh, the Cooper Consortium did not obtain the franchise, although they did a lot of the heavy lifting to soften the ground. Cooper stepped aside as Labatt's Brewery and others took up the cause. Cooper would wind up being one of five men charged in defrauding the public of $4.25 million by bid rigging on seven dredging contracts between 1969 and 1975. He went on trial in February of 78, and after all appeals had been exhausted, he served a three-year sentence beginning in 1981. A second unsuccessful group was spearheaded by uh, Lorne DeGuy, and I hope I pronounced that right a vice president of Hiram Walker and Sons Distillery. This group included Harold Ballard, the then owner of the NHL Maple Leafs hockey team. And sidebar here, that dude was getting into trouble as well. The owner of the Leafs, Ballard, he was convicted on 48 counts of fraud, theft, tax evasion in August of 72, as well as diverting $205,000 from the hockey franchise to his own accounts for personal use. He was sentenced to nine years in the pokey, but he would be released on parole in October of 1973. Now, the group that winded up winning the bid was fronted by Labatt's Brewery. At the time, the Canadian beer market was dominated by three companies, Labatt's, Molson, and Carling O'Keefe. And side note again, um, Labatt's is really prominent in the baseball in Canada. Um, I did a story called The Death of the Montreal Expos. It's in our archives. And Labatt's was firmly entrenched with trying to make baseball work in Montreal. So Labatt's has a baseball interest in that country. If you've never heard The Death of the Montreal Expos, it's truly one of my favorite shows I've ever done. You need to go back and check that out any of your podcast platforms, or you can go to diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. And the bat, at the time, it, it didn't have a strong presence in urban Ontario, as Toronto was, was and still is the largest urban center in the province. At the outset, the Labatt's group 
approached the Cooper Group about arranging marketing rights for Labatt's should Cooper obtain a franchise. But Cooper, after huddling up with his talking heads, he comes back to Labatt and he says, yeah, yeah, me and my partners, we ain't so sure getting into bed with a brewery company is going to look good for us when we pitch this idea. To which the Labatt Group thought was, you know, kind of a strange response considering Commissioner Kuhn had already said there was no issue whatsoever with brewery involvement. Considering the Orioles, the Cardinals, and the Brewers were all owned by breweries at that time. And during the period of the exhibition stadium renovations, there had been some preliminary conversations about the possibility of Cleveland, the Padres, or the Orioles moving to Toronto, although none of those discussions led to an announcement of a franchise move. However... That was not the case with the San Francisco Giants in 1973, and this I did not know. This blows me away. The Giants and owner Horace Stoneham, they were in perilous financial straits, and their team was officially for sale. Labatt calculated the value of the team at $8 million U.S., uh, $8 million in 1973. That's the purchasing power of $53.5 million in the broken economy today. However, there was a bid for $10 million from a Washington, D.C. group. Labatt then pushed it to 12.5, and on January 9th, 1976, Godfrey announced that the Giants board had approved the sale and transfer of the team to the Canadian brewery, pending NL approval. San Francisco Mayor George Muscone immediately took legal action, and he got a restraining order against any transfer whatsoever. By March 2nd, 1976, Muscone had found a local ownership group that the NFL owners approved of, and that would keep them in San Francisco. And folks, that's a huge butterfly effect moment. No more Giants in San Francisco? You kidding me? You you mean to tell me they go from New York to San Francisco to Toronto? What are they, the freaking A's? No more Bonds, no more Oracle Park. I just cannot imagine a baseball universe without the San Francisco fucking Giants. But look, alternative Earth is out there. We can't ignore it forever. And like I said it before, every indication was that Toronto was going to be in the market for an NL team. The existence of a natural rivalry between Montreal and Toronto and intrigued the suits and the Canadian baseball fans. Combine that with the near transfer of the San Francisco Giants to the North of American border. And it was clear that the ownership was vying for an NL spot. But there was movement in the AL at this time. And even if many people weren't paying attention, things were going on. The Saint, uh, the Seattle Pilots had relocated to Milwaukee after their inaugural 1969 season. The state of Washington had filed a $32 million antitrust lawsuit against the American League, and the suit was dropped when the American League agreed to expand for the 1977 season. In order to avoid the complexities of a 13-team league, MLB announced that a second franchise would be awarded to the American League at the owners' meeting in March of 1976. And I kind of talked about this a couple weeks ago with the Kauffman Stadium show. Um, The A's had left Kansas City. Uh, Kansas City wanted a baseball team. Uh, 
you know, the powers that be were kind of dragging their feet. And Kansas City, some of the politicians in that city, uh, they came forward and they said, look, man, we're going to take you to court for this antitrust exemption. And what do you know? Kansas City was given a team right here. The city of Seattle was given a team. All you had to do was make that threat. And it seemed like baseball didn't want to have anything to do with that going to court. And they just rather would give you the fucking team. Now, having lost the Giants officially on March 2nd, the LeBrac group had 27 days to get their shit together and beat out bids by other cities as well as another local consortium headed by Carling Brewery. Jerry Hoffberger, the then owner of the Orioles, had always had a positive relationship in brewery business dealings with Carling, and he was very supportive of his group. On March 29th, the AL owners huddle up and heard presentations and bids from all interested parties. The Labatt bid was accepted by a vote of 11 to 1, with Hoffberger of the Orioles being the lone dissenting voice. Labatt was awarded the franchise for $7 million U.S., which has the purchasing power of around $36 million in 2022. AL President Lee McPhail said that Toronto was always the first choice of the AL owners because it was large and growing, a bustling metropolitan area, but it was public knowledge that Commissioner Kuhn favored and lobbied for another team in the district. However, the AL owners, tired of seeing D.C. leave the American League, not just once in 1961, but again in 1972, they beat that suggestion off and they chose Toronto. The eight-year quest for the franchise had required careful manipulation and compromise, politically and financially. But at long last, Toronto had a Major League Baseball team of their own. The team held a team named Contest, and the Blue Jays' name was adopted from over 4,000 different entries. Now, in the beginning, there were numerous challenges for Toronto to overcome. First of all, there's no nice way to put it. Exhibition Stadium sucked. It was a shitbox. I mean, really, really bad. I don't mean to insult any of my Canadian brothers and sisters, but it was awful. Go to your Google machine, pull up Exhibition Stadium, and then you fucking tell me. It makes the TROP look like the Roman Coliseum. And the first five years, the team was really, really bad. Some of the fans in the beginning called the stadium Prohibition Stadium, where adult beverages were prohibited from being sold or drank. And that was the law for five years until July 30th, 1982, when the Ontario government finally allowed beer to be sold on a trial basis. Local broadcasting rights became another point of contention for the new franchise, learning to spread their wings, and in this cutthroat universe of professional sports teams. In 1977, there were no Canadian specialty sports channels. There were two national television networks, the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and the privately owned CVT Network. In 1977... NBC paid $1.2 million to broadcast 46 Blue Jays games in English and 18 in French. By 1980, a local television rights had grown to $3 million. By 1982, the Jays had hired Bobby Cox as their manager, and they saw marked improvement on the field at Exhibition Stadium going 75-84, and their best record yet. And a side note, 
That's also the first year the government allowed beer to be sold at Jays games. And I'm just fascinated by people who live in dry counties or who have these oppressive laws imposed on them. So here in 1982, you can finally enjoy a beer with your baseball. But only beer sold from the concession stand and only a maximum of two beers for sale. No beer vendors in the stands. And the officials let them know if there was any breakout of mass drunken alcohol related incidents, well, you can kiss your moose head goodbye, you hosers. Your, your drinking privileges will be revoked. The Toronto Medium questioned how many fans would be willing to spend a whole $1.75 on a 12-ounce cup of beer anyway. Apparently, a shit ton of fans will spend a buck seventy-five for a cup of beer, eh? <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I, I had to try that on precise just once. I love Canada, greatest neighbors in the world. And look, so that is the backstory of how the Blue Jays came to be. Finally, we're pulling into Toronto, Ontario, November of 1982. And I brought you here because the Grey Cup, you know, which is like the Canadian Super Bowl, it's about to go down between the Edmonton Eskimos and the hometown Argos. And I want you to see what the Blue Jays are working with here. You might as well stay on the train because these fans look miserable right now as the rain is pouring so bad that the reporters in the newspaper column all across Canada tomorrow will be calling this the rainbow. It was these hard conditions that finally broke the camel's back as the Blue Jays have decided once and for all it's time to get the ball rolling on this idea that's been brewing for some time. Ever since the club's inaugural opening day, when play was interrupted by a blackening snowstorm, the fans of Toronto are very self-conscious about the weather in Major League Baseball. The time has come to be better. Exhibition Stadium was only intended to be a temporary facility until a dome stadium could be built anyway. The ballpark had an adequate capacity of 44,649, but the seating was uncomfortable. Only the alpha field bleachers from left field to center field had a roof, and down the right field line there was no roof, and the seats were aluminum benches. And, of course, weather is a major concern. Concern, especially as we get deeper into the 1980s and the club continues to get better and better and the prospects of playing deeper into the calendar year become greater. While the summers in Toronto are pleasant, averages, highs and lows between, uh, average highs between 70 and 80 degrees from June through September, the average lows and highs from for April are 33 degrees Fahrenheit and 53 degrees. For May, you're talking about lows and highs of 43 degrees, 65 degrees, and October averages around 39 degrees and 44 degrees, lows and highs. And, you know, it can become extremely comfortable the deeper your team goes in the playoffs. So, the official progress for construction of a dome stadium, it begins in earnest. Sometime in 1983, when Ontario Premier William Davis proposed the construction of a $150 million facility supported by all three levels of Canadian government, which is federal, provincial, and municipal, by the way. 
after an eight-month search, and uh, they came with a location in Downsview Park. And it was recommended. It is just miles from downtown Toronto, adjacent to the Downsview Airport, airport, and uh, an Air Force base nearby. The location was accessible by highway and public transit. However, the federal government had no interest in having a ballpark that close to a military base. Ultimately, the Canadian National Railway offered an underdeveloped rail yard by the downtown CN Tower, and that site was selected in January of 1985. The site was within walking distance of Union Station, a major transport hub for the Toronto subway system, as well as the primary commuter and inner city railway terminal. The next task was the selection of the architects. Four bidders competed for the contract and the honor of designing and building the new stadium, which had included a retractable roof. And side note here, I hear people say retractable dome when describing Sky Dome slash Rogers all the time. And it makes me nutty because by definition alone, a dome cannot retract. There's no such thing as a retractable dome, only retractable roofs, but I digress. Where was I? <laughs> the award of the contract was uh, $225 million Canadian. Budget was given to architect Rod Robbie and structural engineer Michael Allen. And the ability to build a functioning retractable roof was met with skepticism. From a technological standpoint, the skeptics were wrong. The roof has, for the most part, with a few minor snafus, has worked as it was designed to since Sky Dome opened June 5th, 1989, with a seating capacity of 50,516. There is a video on YouTube where you literally see these two smart dudes come up with the idea of a functioning retractable roof. It, it took them about eight hours to come up with the idea of how it would work, and then it took hundreds of hours in planning instruction to pull it off. And I need to be perfectly clear here with you folks. The budget management for the construction of Sky Dome is not a success story. In fact, it was a disaster. Remember that $250 million budget I mentioned? Well, the final bill for the construction charges, including interest, it came out to around $650 million. The large budget increase was not strictly related to poor project management. Uh, there were plans for the hotel and health club. They were added during the construction. Although, the original agreement was for a sharing of profits and risk between the corporate consortium and the provincial government. The government ended up protecting the consortium members from the overrun losses. This ultimately led to a $300 million write-off being incurred by the provincial government. In 1993, the provincial government sold Skydome to a private company, Eiton, for $150 million. In 1999, Skydome was sold again under supervision of bankruptcy court for $80 million to Sportsco International Limited Partnership. And in 2004, the current owner of the stadium, Rogers Communication, they purchased the $650 million stadium for $25 million or literally 4% of the cost of the stadium. It is somewhat unbelievable 
that this once state-of-the-art building that sits on prime Lake Ontario property has literally devalued 96% since she was built, while the other buildings around her have gone up in value. The major factor for the decline of value was in the accumulation of debt that mounted during construction. By 1993, the debt had climbed to $400 million due to missed pay- interest payments. Now, this is worrisome because the team is kick-ass at this, this point. They've won back-to-back World Series titles in 92 and 93. They've drawn over 4 million fans uh, a year from 1991 to 93. They should be swimming in cash, not missing interest payments. A recalculation of cash flow budgets indicate that Skydome has to be open 600 days a year just to cover cost and generate a small, minuscule profit. At this point, she is drawing crowds, and fans love her amenities. But let's face it, she's a fucking money pit. Despite the consortium purchase price and around the original stadium budgets, finances did not improve. The 1998 bankruptcy filing indicated that the owners were losing $3 million a year, a year and they all owed millions in back property tax. Thankfully, as the only sports and entertainment venue of its size and design in Canada, Roger Senator has hosted some of the greatest music, sports, trade, and community events of our time. Rock stars, pro wrestlers, the circus, athletes, religious figures, and inspirational leaders, they've all performed under the expansive and majestic roof. Structurally, Rogers Center remains the same in 2022 season as it had from the beginning. However, as you are listening to my voice, there are workers inside of Rogers uh, center right now, and major renovations are currently underway over the course of the next three years. But I'm getting there. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, okay? One of the unique features of Rogers is her versatility at this point. In some ways, she's kind of like that last cookie-cutter stadium, but she was built in the 80s. Even though outside of her multi-sport versatility, there isn't much cookie-cutter about her or, or is there? And it's almost like she's an advanced cookie cutter, cutter at this point. It can be transformed to meet the needs of any event converting between baseball and football. Again, this is about to change in 2023 as it is to my understanding that it will be a baseball only park and football will never be played there ever again. Currently, the 100 level seats sit on a railway track system that allows them to rotate between football and baseball mode within hours as part of an extensive renovation project in the early 2000s. The fully retractable roof was truly a technological marvel when Skydome literally opened to the heavens. Nothing like this had ever been tried or accomplished in sports architecture, and this is game-changing shit. Now, the insecure Canadians don't need to hear any smog Americans insulting the weather in their fine country anymore. The roof allows the venue to be open, air facility, as well as the ability to shutter up when the weather conditions are not ideal for baseball. The roof system features an ingenious series of three movable panels, and one stationary panel. And the whole thing takes 25 minutes to open or close fully. 
The roof weighs 11,000 tons and covers a stadium footprint of 339,334 square feet. And the highest point stands 282 feet above field level. The architects, Rod Robbie, Michael Allen, they designed the crib and patterned their retractable and patented their retractable roof system. Preparation for the site in April of 1986. The groundbreaking takes place in October of that year. The last slab of exterior concrete was poured in November of 88. And the first test for the retractable roof panels were performed in January of 1989. More than 10,000 person years of employment were created within the construction of Skydome. And it's home to impressive tech, including video and ribbon boards located in the north end and around the uh, circumference of the 300 level. Uh, Purchased in 2005 from Dactronics, uh, the screen is top shelf liquor, ProStar Video Plus, which uses state-of-the-art LED technology. The video board measures 110 feet wide by 33 feet high, and it is capable of projecting 4.3 trillion different colors. The Jays saw a significant change to their playing surface before the 2016 season. After an extensive research, a decision was made to retrofit the field from its original state of four separate concrete pits filled with dirt, forming each base, to an all-dirt infield. The new dirt allows for greater material depth, which ensures an infield uh, that is more consistent with the rest of the major leagues. The infield now... 12,000 square feet in area is made up of five distinct layers. It starts with the underfill, the existing sand and gravel below the concrete floor. A two-inch layer of pea gravel is above that, which provides an area for excess water to go to. Above that pea gravel, you have four-inch layer of subangular sand, which from my research looks like it is the most important part of the moisture management system. The remaining six inches is filled with baseball dirt, which is a product that is processed specifically for baseball fields. Now think about that, folks. Even the fucking dirt is special. You won't find this dirt anywhere unless you're on a well-cared-for baseball field. Listen up, Seamheads, because I'm about to school you guys, and, and so get your notebooks out and write this down. Major League Baseball dirt is a blend of 60% sand, 20% clay, 20% silt. And sitting on top of the baseball dirt is the top layer, also known as top dressing, which is basically a layer of materials made up of calcinated and vitrified clay. The rest of the field remains the roll-up synthetic type uh, AstroTurf system. It's AstroTurf 3D Extreme 60 product. They started using it in 2015. The product is a blend of monofilament and slit film face fibers. It's combined with a texturized thatch and reinforced backing that looks and feels and plays more like natural grass. The 3D Extreme product differs from the old AstroTurf. Um, It's got this type of infill that's required between the turf fibers, uh, the turf fibers, and those are black, those are like those black seed things that you, you see puff up from the cleats on the turf. You see it a lot in football fields that have these hybrid grass turf systems. With a 
symmetrical layout in baseball mode. The field measures 328 feet down the foul lines, 375 feet to the power alleys, and 400 feet to dead center field. The diamond is centered two degrees off perfect north with a 10-foot high outfield wall. It's been fully padded for player protection. And the pitcher's mound, listen to this, it's constructed on on a fiberglass dish that is lowered and raised by a hydraulic system. Conveniently located in downtown Viber, Toronto, at the base of the impressive CN Tower, and closely in the entertainment and financial district, the stadium is easily accessible via the TTC or the GO Transit. Inside the stadium is the Renaissance Toronto Hotel with 348 rooms, including 70 that overlook the field. Now, just remember to close your curtain if you want to get a little freaky with your significant other. Uh, more than one couple has been exposed in the throws. While the Jays are playing, if you know what I'm saying. The entire footprint of Rogers Center, it spans 12.7 acres. The building itself takes up 11.5 acres. The diameter of the building is 700 feet wide, while the volume inside the stadium with the roof closed is 56.5 million cubic feet, or 1.6 million cubic meters. On the average, it takes 40 hours to convert the field from one sport to another. The seating capacity is approximately uh, 54,000 depending on the layout of the event. 151 suites are conveniently located on the 300 and 400 level of the venue. On September, I'm sorry, Saturday, October 23rd, 1993, the Jays beat Filthy 8-6 to clinch a World Series title on their home field for the only time in franchise history. On March 17, 2002, Rogers Center set a uh, venue attendance record when it hosted 68,237 fans to see the WWE's uh, WrestleMania 18. That was a really good card. That was the Hulk Hogan rock match, if I believe. And the names of every worker who helped build the Rogers Center can be found in permanent tribute located on the north end of the 100 concourse. Now, I told you that Rogers Center is currently, as I speak, getting a major facelift as renovations are underway. And personally, I'm loving what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing. They have some video on YouTube with renditions of where they're going. If you want to check it out, it reminds me of how much the Big A and Coffin Stadium changed for the better after major renovations. And I love these new plans for Rogers Center. With a $300 million renovation scheduled to take place over the next two off-seasons, the Blue Jays plan to transform the multi-purpose stadium into a true ballpark. The project is privately funded, and it is the first large-scale renovation plan in the ballpark's 33-year history. And that makes her the seventh oldest crib in the league. It's going to look dramatically different for opening day in 2023. You need to understand that. The largest focus is taking this 1980s perspective of what baseball was and turning that into a notion of what baseball is in the 2020s and beyond. Phase one of the project is underway and it is beginning, it is the beginning in the total reconstruction of levels 100 and 200. There will be a series of levels and open patio seating 
drink rails, bars, viewing platforms that will allow fans to move through the stadium as the game goes on. The ball pit, the bullpen also plans on raising. Uh, it's going to be raised out there in the outfield. Uh, to practically the 100 level and move those seats closer to the wall, bringing fans closer to the bullpen action. Currently in Rogers. Uh, you have these. Whew, my stomach hurts. Sorry about that. Currently in Rogers, you have these uh, 10 foot walls. And sometimes, well, Quite often, actually, you, you lose home runs to what I call the black void, meaning home runs, balls, that should always end up in stands for a lucky fan to keep or sell or whatever. But if you notice, Rogers has a platform seats, and sometimes home runs clear that 10-foot wall, but they don't make it into level 100 or 200. They land in what I call the black void, and that's the place under level 100. And with these new plans, the bullpen will be raised, And the fans will be layered and balls will no longer disappear in what I call the black void. And the 500 level, two new social decks will be added to left and right field. And all 500 level seats will be replaced from the original when the building is open. The goal is to create a more viewer friendly experience than anything they've ever had in the past. And that's addressing a long-time concern due to the funky nature of the multi-purpose layout that Skydome has. And I want to be honest with you, that sky patio on, on the 500 level, it's going to look amazing. It's going to totally change the batter's eye flow and probably the whole atmosphere inside of that park. Jay's ownership and front office, they hope that facilitating a more viewer-friendly experience and adding social gathering for families and casual fans will help foster the game of baseball in Toronto. In terms of player amenities, the Blue Jays have based their project on the blueprint set forth by their player development complex in Dunedin, Florida. And that thing is off the hook. They got things on uh, YouTube where they take a drone and fly it over that thing. You should really check out that uh, Blue Jays player development complex they have down there in Dunedin, Florida. The spring training home of the Blue Jays, that's that's where it's at. And that was completed last year. It's widely regarded as the best complex in the Grapefruit League and has received exceptional feedback and is serving as a template for the work that is to come on the Rogers Center. The first phase of renovations will see the addition of 5,000 square foot weight room. Uh, players' family room, and a staff locker room. Phase 2, which will take place in 2023 and 2024, will shift the focus to overhauling the 100 level. This will include the addition of premium club box seats at field level. This phase will also round out the renovations of player facilities and the clubhouses. The Jays do not anticipate any major issues or delays, but potential setbacks is why the renovations are split up into phases over the next three off-seasons, including this one. The renovation to Rogers Center will deliver an enhanced ballpark experience for fans of Canadian for Canada's team, said Edward Rogers, the chairman of the board for Rogers Communication and a press release, so that they can cheer on the Blue Jays and make cherished memories with family and friends as they have for the last 33 years. And that, my CMED brothers and sisters, is the history of of Skydome. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed telling the story. 
And folks, there's a lot of really cool stuff about the building of Skydome on YouTube. I mean, really interesting, interesting, fascinating stuff. You know, uh, it's thankfully the time of the video age is starting to blow up. And I got to tell you, first of all, watching these this architect and this engineer figure out how to make the retracting roof functional, that's pretty fucking amazing. And then watching these welders and steel workers walk around on those girders with no ropes, no nets, I, it was making me nauseous. I, I'm sitting here thinking about it, it's making me nauseous. I mean... Those are real men right there. I'm not about that horse shit. I would fall within four seconds, guaranteed. But yeah, there's a lot of footage of Skydome under construction. And can you believe that a stadium built in 1989 is actually the seventh oldest stadium in the league? It's truly unbelievable. Now, before I get out of here, I want to give you some skinning, some uh, major first here on Skydome slash Roger Center. The first game played at Skydome was Monday, June 5th, 1989, in a Blue Jays 5-3 loss to the Milwaukee Brewers in front of 48,378 fans. The first win came two days later when they beat Milwaukee 4-2. The first Blue Jays pitcher was Southpaw Jimmy Key. He lost that day. The first batter and the first hit in Skydome was Paul Molitor. He doubled. The blade umpire that opening day was Rocky Rowe. The first home run hit in Skydome was Fred McGriff. He also had the stadium's first stolen base. Gary Sheffield of the Brewers had the first RBI in Skydome history when he doubled in Molitor in the first inning of that opening day. The first winning pitcher was Don August of Milwaukee. Jimmy Key lost that day. And the first winning pitcher was John Cerruti. And there you have it, folks. Another topic to add to our collection. And I remember when Skydom first came out. I... I I really, honestly, I thought this might be the way to go in the future. It had versatility, multi-purpose, but soon the retro stadiums are coming and they would make these things ghost of baseball's past. I'm truly digging the plans for Roger Center, what they're doing right now. These bullpens, they look dope and they're more intimate. That sky bar patio is badass. Too many times you see on TV how levels 400 and 500 are dead-ass empty in the outfield at Rogers. And I truly believe this renovation idea is going to do for Rogers what renovations have done for the Big A and for Kaufman. Next year on opening day, prepare yourself for a new reimagined Rogers Center. It's going to look totally different than the building that has stood on the majestic shores of Lake Ontario for the past 33 years. I want to thank all of you again for rallying around my monkey this week. I have two huge weeks ahead of us here at Backwards K-Pod. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, I have that live one-on-one I will be dropping on the 18th with former Major Leaguer Shane Hillenbrand. I'm really looking forward to that. But before that, one week from today, same bat time, same bat channel, I'm going to take a trip to Puerto Rico. I'm going to hang out, eat some plantains and rice, and learn a little something about the baseball culture on that island. As next week, I'm going to be examining baseball in Puerto Rico. 
with the WGC coming in March. I'm going to be visiting these different qualifying countries to learn more about baseball in their homelands. So next week, baseball in Puerto Rico, and I can't wait. But that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch with their nose in a pool, looking bored AF. Please, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day.